as we have read this morning, only through Jesus Christ, who has taken on our sin and bore the brunt of your wrath for us. Meet us this morning, we pray, as we come to you behind Jesus. Give us everything that he died for, all the benefits of his death for us. We pray that you would pour them out on us this morning and transform us into his image, the image of Christ. We lift this up to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles. If you brought one, that's fine. If there's pew Bibles, if you have a phone, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. But turn to our scripture lesson from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. In our Gospel lesson, the brothers James and John come to Jesus with a request that you can see in verse 35. You can look at it. You can find it there in your Bible. They say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. And, whoa, that's brazen. We might be a little bit indignant along with the disciples when we hear something like that, especially with the further kind of clarification about exactly what they're asking. But doesn't Jesus invite such brazenness in prayer and in his request? Doesn't he tell the disciples elsewhere in the Gospel of John, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. And so, yes, Jesus does invite such brazenness. However, it must be directed to the glory of God. And this is why why that phrase is so important. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. This is no throwaway line. This is just not tagged on. This is not a cliche for Jesus. This is it. This makes sense of it all. In fact, it is the key to understanding this episode in Mark's gospel. And it helps us to see the error, the sin in James and John's request. And it puts in proper context God's remedy. You see, James and John come to Jesus seeking glory. They want to be in the place of glory. Just look at verse 37. Grant us to sit. One at your right hand, one at your left hand, in your glory. We want to be at the center of power and control and status and prestige. We want to be there. We want to be in glory. They wanted to be in that place. And just to be clear, seeking glory is not wrong. It's not wrong in itself. In fact, it is part of our created image of being created in the image of God. It's part of our created nature to be glory seekers. God created humanity to image him within creation. This means that our created orientation, the directions of our lives are to be towards God. Like a mirror. If we all sit in a mirror, if you stand outside of the view of that mirror, the direction of that mirror, the mirror is not going to mirror you. It's not going to image you. It's not going to reflect you. And if we're the mirror, if we're the image of God in this world, we have to be directed to the object that we are supposed to be representing. As the image and likeness of God, our lives are to mirror the life of God. So then the glory that we are to seek is the very glory of God. And we glorify God when our lives conform to his image. Conform to and image the divine life. So we image God whenever our lives resemble the life of God. And Jesus confirms this in his incarnation. He reveals the deep meaning of our human creation in the image of God. 
As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. He shows us what it's like to be fully and truly human, to image forth the divine nature in human flesh. In Christ, God presents himself to humanity as the model of humankind's perfection and destiny. And by destiny, we mean what God has always intended for us to become. God has always, from the moment he created Adam and Eve, intended humanity to become Christ. To be molded into the image of Christ. He fashioned Adam and Eve in that likeness, in the image of God. He shows us, Jesus shows us by his example that his nature is both human and divine. He reveals to us that we too are to be like him. Just as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, we are to be human partakers of the divine nature. Now, Jesus reveals the divine nature in his humanity most clearly on the cross. The cross is where God the Father is most glorified in the incarnate Jesus. And this is the driving force of John's gospel. At the turning point of John's gospel in chapter 12, verse 23, and following, Jesus declares, the hour has come. All up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has been saying My hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Then finally here in chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of God to be glorified. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And don't miss this. Father, glorify your name. How is the Father to have his name glorified? In the sacrifice of the Son on the cross. On the cross, human nature is seen in perfect alignment with the divine nature in Jesus' sacrificial death. And this results in what? God receiving glory. Jesus was a glory seeker. He has the perfect image of what we are to be as humans he was the pre the ultimate glory seeker likewise we are to be glory seekers but that glory we are to seek is the father's and the way we seek that glory is through the example of jesus's sacrifice on the cross and this is exactly the point god is glorified when human lives align with his divine nature So it's not too brazen for James and John to want to say we want to be glory seekers. But whose glory are they seeking? Okay, so we're created to seek glory. We're created to seek God's glory. And this pursuit of God's glory is good and virtuous. However, in our world marred by sin, this good pursuit becomes perverted. It's twisted when it deviates from the pursuit of God's glory and instead strives after the glory of man. Sometimes in Scripture, Paul and, and Corinthians, I think 2 Corinthians eleven eighteen will call this a glorying after the flesh. It's glory. We, we, it becomes twisted and, and perverted and deviates from what we were always meant to be, glory seekers, seekers after God's glory. Instead, we seek our own glory. We seek the praise of men. And the early church identified this twisted pursuit of glory as vainglory. Maybe you've heard it. I think that terminology is somewhat out of fashion. It might be helpful to bring it back because there's a rich tradition of understanding this pernicious sin in our lives. Not to heap upon us guilt and condemnation, but to bring about the remedy, freedom from it. 
Vainglory is that temptation, and this is it, to display our goodness, right, virtue, our, our good living, our, our, our holiness, our righteousness, to display our goodness, our gifts, right, those things that God has given us, our intellect, our charisma, our beauty, and our goods, material possessions. So vainglory is the temptation to display our goodness, our gifts, and our goods in ways that earn us glory. The recognition, praise, admiration, esteem, honor, and flattery of men and women. And this is what we see James and John falling prey to in our lesson from Mark 10. They desire glory, but it is not the glory due unto God. Jesus' remarks there about the Gentiles seeking glory, their leaders lording it over them, indicates that clearly for us. They were not seeking the glory that was due unto God. Rather, it is a glory that they believed they deserved from others. And James and John are not alone in their struggle with vainglory. They just might be struggling a little more loudly than others. Vainglory is a temptation we all struggle with, if we're honest. The other disciples show us that in verse 41. And when they, the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. Well, why are they mad? Well, they're mad because they want to be in the place of glory. Right? Their, indig their indignation, and in their indignation, they discovered their own vainglorious pursuit. They desired to be just where James and John wanted to be. They wanted to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he came into his glory, when he became a ruler over the nation, maybe even a ruler over the world. They wanted to be right there. They all wanted it. So don't think I'm out of line here when I say that many of us, myself included, especially myself included, are tempted with vainglory in one way or another. Whether it, we struggle with it overtly where everybody can see that that's something we struggle with, like the disciples Saul and James and John, or whether we struggle with it covertly, the matter of our heart. So it would be helpful for us to be able to diagnose vainglory in our lives because naming this struggle, this sin, can often illuminate other places where it is destroying, destructive to our lives and our relationships because vainglory does destroy. It destroys the image of God. It rips us apart in our personhood, and it rips us from community, and it turns us away from God. It is a destroying force. And in our lesson, we see three symptoms of vainglory. And this is not by any means an exhaustive list. It's just the three that come up here. Uh, if you read the church fathers, they uh, will spend a, a massive amount of time explaining to us what vainglory is and all its different ways it can expose itself. The first symptom. We seek glory from others for the goodness, gifts, or goods that we possess. For the goodness, gifts, and goods that we actually genuinely possess, that God has given us. Along with Peter, James, and John formed an inner circle among the 12 disciples. Right? Those were the three core, the leaders of the 12, the leaders of the troop. And there were qualities, gifts, President James, and John that, that lent Jesus to choose these guys, to include them in this place. They had the qualities of leadership. Yet they desired more recognition, as our gospel lesson shows. You can almost hear the dialogue between them on the road as they're walking. Look, James, or look, John, we deserve to be at Jesus' right and left hand, don't we? Don't we? We deserve these places of glory. Jesus has already recognized us as leaders among the twelve. We've, we've, we've seen his glory. 
Shouldn't we be in it all the time? Shouldn't we be in that place? We got all the gifts. Now we just need people to recognize and respect us for them. How often do we find our own selves engaged in an inner dialogue that can resemble this in some way? Shouldn't people respect me more? Shouldn't people praise me more for my gift of leadership, for how well-spoken I am? Or shouldn't people praise me for this or for that? We desire glory for a good thing that we genuinely have that has been given to us by God, and we become preoccupied with winning the recognition and praise from others for it. And so we find ourselves doing everything from primping in front of the mirror, that is a particular problem I have, no, to parenting our kids to be scholarship-winning students, not just for them to be, have a good life, but maybe for us to be like, look at my boy, you know, bring, he praises upon me, please, or all the way to having a prestigious job title. We seek all kinds of things, right, so that people will turn their eyes to us and give us an attaboy. And maybe the most pernicious form of this is when we seek praise for living virtuous lives. I mean, genuinely virtuous lives. When we live according to the ways of God, yet our heart begins to say, shouldn't people congratulate me for being so virtuous? Vainglory has creeped in in that moment. And along the way, we often find ourselves at some point manipulating others, hurting others to get the glory we think we deserve for the good gifts that God has given us. And this leads us to that second symptom that we find here in, of vainglory. And that second symptom is that we seek glory, we seek glory through manipulating and belittling others. Notice that James and John come to make this request without Peter. I thought they were three, the leaders of the troop, leaders of the group, but they don't come with Peter. This may seem insignificant at first, but throughout Mark's gospel, James and John, along with Peter, form that inner circle, the leaders of the twelve. And this is the only incident where they act on their own apart from Peter. Every other time, they're acting with Peter. Right? They, they were the leadership team of the disciples, but not here. They go behind Peter's back. James and John are being manipulative. They're using backhanded tactics to achieve glory for themselves at the expense of Peter. They triangulate Jesus in their attempt to get glory. Peter is one of the recognized leaders, right? He's, he, he should. Why, why not say, hey, Peter, do you want to join us? Maybe there's a, 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 a behind Jesus and in front of Jesus that is thrown. You know, maybe we can get four people around him. You know, do you want to come along? Maybe we'll seek some glory together. No, because vainglory wants to edge people out, push people down, so that you can be elevated and seen above others. So often we can use manipulative means, either to orchestrate praise from others or to elevate ourselves over others, which often involves us belittling them. And we do this whether it's subtly or more, uh, or more out in the open. Right? This is exactly what Jesus says the rulers of the Gentiles do. They lord it over. They push others down so they might push themselves up and be above them and receive the praise, the glory, the accolades of men. There's a third symptom we see here as well. We seek glory for the goodness, gifts, and goods we do not possess. This is the fake it till you make it vainglory seeking. Just look at Mark 10, 38 and 39. 
But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And James and John here, James and John here have overestimated their abilities. They have an overestimation of themselves and they want others to recognize it. We want you to see us in the same delusional way we see ourselves. They want others to praise them and respect them for things they don't have, for abilities they don't possess. If you struggle with this, fake it till you make it vainglory, you may find yourself bluffing through a job interview or conversations with folks, presenting an image of yourself that doesn't reflect reality in order to garner the esteem of those around you. And this is particularly troublesome for us in the digital age where we present all kind of things about ourselves that aren't true. These three symptoms are by no means exhaustive, but they are representative of the presence of vainglory in our lives. And the early church fathers saw vainglory as one of those most hideous vices because it so often goes unnoticed by the person who struggles with it. Do you think James and John had any idea what they were doing? I don't think they really saw it as wrong. They really saw, don't we deserve this? It's obvious. And we struggle to see it in ourselves because this sin preys upon good and true motives, like the true motive of seeking glory. Vainglory will turn such motives sour when we become overly attached to positive feedback and the way it feeds our reputation with others and even our own image of ourselves. We love it. We love to be praised by others. And so we must ask ourselves, do I have an insatiable need for attention? Do I have an insatiable need for affirmation that drives me to subtly manipulate and manage my life? Do I trust God to make something of my life even when I face humiliation and failure? That'll really show us in those tough moments. Or do I want human approval so badly I can't let go of appearances even when I should? St. Augustine once confessed that his friendships became a dangerous game because he was so interested in pleasing his peers and winning their love that he was willing to walk away from God. Is that struggle present in your life? I feel like at times that struggle is present in the life of the church. Is our church, speaking very broadly here, vainglorious? And that reality is the danger of vainglory, that it turns us away from God. And one morning we wake up and we find out that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. We've worshipped ourselves. We've worshipped the praise of men. But thanks be to God, our story does not have to end with us succumbing to vainglory. That is a great place to be. We don't have to end in this sin. It doesn't have to control us and held and hold us captive. God has not left us without an efficacious treatment. He has given us his only son, Jesus, as we heard in all those readings this morning. He is the great physician. God is our stronghold, our protection, our defense. Jesus has ransomed us. He has freed us from vainglory. 
He has united us to God the Father and has shown us how to become partakers of the divine nature, how to become fully human, how to seek God's glory and not our own. And as we close, look at Mark 10, 34, or 43 and through 45. Look at what Jesus says there. He's freed us and he's given us, and this tells us all right here. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man, Jesus, the ultimate, the image that we were made in, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, purchasing you back, freeing you for many. Jesus has freed you from vainglory, and he has freed you to live. He's freed us from vainglory, and he has freed us to live toward God, lives directed towards God, giving him the glory for the great things that he has done and the good gifts that he has given to you. Even Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Don't hide your light. Don't hide your good works. Let people see your good works. Why? So that they might glorify your Father in heaven. Be glory seekers. You're free to seek glory now, truly and rightly. You're free to be truly and fully human. And so we must practice the practices of freedom. And two practices of freedom the church has found to be true, good, and beautiful here are solitude and silence as ways of addressing vainglory. Make room for habitual periods of solitude and silence. Silence. We need to remove the main tool, the main tool for image management, our tongues, or their embodiment in our phones. Silence. Solitude. We need periods of time where we do not have an audience except for God. We need not to perform. We need just to be silent and be present to God. Habitual periods of silence and solitude teach us to function without managing our image and without a human audience. They help us to remove the mask. Can we really be silent in front of God? Or is that too uncomfortable? Is there not enough praise there? Who are we without anyone to perform for, without any roles we are expected to fill? This is, this is hitting at those folks like myself who are task and goal-oriented, driven to tick off things off the list. Do we know how to rest in God's presence just as we are? What does a life of receiving mercy rather than projecting competence feel like? What does a life of receiving mercy rather than projecting competence feel like? Solitude and silence wean us from our own self-images. Our value and identity often rest on those images which simply cannot bear the weight of our need to be known and loved unconditionally. Only an infinite loving God can do his word to the vainglorious is, you are precious in my sight and honored. Isaiah 43, 4. You are precious in my sight and honored. You see, Jesus, on the cross, not only purchased you to free you from vainglory, he has enabled you to share his honor. 
you have worth. You have significance. You're precious. Seek that from God. And not from one another. And then finally, we need to practice the divine nature. Practice the divine nature. And what does that mean? It means dying to ourselves, picking up our cross daily, following Christ, serving others. I think Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says it better than than any other passage. And I have just a minute here. I want to read that for us. And Paul is actually addressing this very issue of vainglory in the church at Philippi. He says there in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or from vainglory, vain conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, right, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It belongs to you in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, every right to seek glory for himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited or taken advantage of, but emptied himself, humbled himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, a cursed death. Therefore, now, in response to that humiliation, God has highly exalted him. Now God praises him. God praises him. And bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven And on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does Paul say there at the end? How does he end that? To the glory of God the Father. Practice the divine nature that resides in you by the Spirit of God. And resist vainglory. May God help us to do that. For life. For the life of the world and for the glory of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.